two things that I love more than uh, forwarded emails. Uh, I love, uh, we all get them. We love these forwarded emails. You remember when your family figured out email for the first time, your, your mother-in-law? Uh, that's always one that's tough. <laughs> Can't say no to that one. Um, and so they keep sending you these forwarded emails, and I get a lot of forwarded emails, and we love them. And finally, everybody figures out that, well, maybe not every story is probably as crucial as we thought it was. And yes, that was a great story of a puppy who found his way home, and I forwarded it on to 10 people so my life would have be at peace, but, um, and hopefully yours will be too. But every now and then I get a, a really good one, and actually this was an article that had been forwarded to me by a good friend of mine from the New York Times, and it printed uh, a couple of Fridays ago. And it's an article that was written about church and what young people are thinking about church today. And uh, I think about that a lot. I think about what is it that motivates people to want to be in an environment like this? How can we create an environment to where uh, people, whether they are far from God or close to God, they can really come and experience something that really adds meaning to, uh, to their lives. And so here is what one author particularly has to say in an article titled, The Perils of Wannabe Cool Christianity. He writes, how can we stop the oil gusher? It may have been the question of the summer for most Americans, yet for many evangelical pastors and leaders, the leaking well is nothing compared to the threat posed by an ongoing gusher of a different sort. Young people pouring out of their churches never to return. You know, spending years and years in student ministry, there, if there's one thing that just breaks my heart more than anything else is when I see this group of folks who often sits up here in the second service, when I see them go off to college, which some of them have already begun to do, and then I, I don't see them again, and, I, and we try and stay connected, and, and so we're thinking as a church, how can we be better at that? How can we be better at just, at not just keeping people in a room, but because we know what's at stake if they fall away from God or if they miss the point of what life is all about and they get stuck into the motion and the rut and, 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 and trying to chase and find balance and all of the things that really God says, no, 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 it's all about me we get what's at stake. And so sometimes that leads us to think, well, what are the methods or the, uh, the tools that we could use to bring people to church? And we do lots of creative things, as, you, as you've even experienced here this morning. But this is what the author continues. This is, what, this is how he continues. This is what he writes. He says, if the evangelical Christian leadership thinks that cool Christianity is a sustainable path forward, they are severely Mistaken. Now, this is a common thread throughout um, 20-somethings who are writing articles now about the church. It's often uh, 100% uh, diagnosis, 0% prescription. They, uh, young people often know what they want, but they can't articulate it, but they know that they don't often want what it is that you want. So we're off just kind of wondering, what in the world do we do? But he says this, as a 20-something, I can say with confidence that when it comes to church, we don't want cool as much as we want real. Now, I can hang my hat on that. Uh, Brett McCracken says, thank you. Uh, but it's true. We get real, don't we? Regardless of our generation, where we are in, in life, we get real. We want something real. Real makes sense to us. And sometimes it's easy to say, that's real. I'm experiencing real. Uh, and it's easy to say, no, I'm not. I, we get when real is not there. And that's one of the things that we think about a lot in church is how can we get to real more often, more and more, not just in this room, but in small groups and classes and mission experiences. Where is real? Well, when I was a child, I was an Atlanta Braves fan. I still am an Atlanta Braves fan. 
And my favorite player was a guy named Dale Murphy. Now, some of you may or may not know Dale Murphy. This is, this is him from the early 80s, great Carolina blue uniforms. Uh, but in the early 80s, if you were an Atlanta Braves fan, this was your guy. This was your only guy because the team just wasn't doing a whole lot. And he wasn't just hanging in there, though. He, uh, Dale Murphy won the National League MVP twice. He was uh, five years in a row Golden Glove winner. Uh, he was a silver slugger. I mean, this guy was a great player. Well, here's the problem with Dale Murphy. He's, he only hit 398 home runs in his career. Well, that sounds pretty good. It's more than I've ever hit, right? But he, it's that magical number to make it to the Hall of Fame is 400. That's what most, uh, most analysts will say. And he's too shy from that. Some people say that his career peaked too early and he never quite made it. But nevertheless, he, his time uh, to be in the Hall of Fame, his ballot time, came and went. And there is this outcry of people like me who loved Dale Murphy, who loved that this guy was real. I mean, if you look at him today, look at his arms. He's like a micro-baseball player compared to today's players. But there's this outcry of individuals who want him to be a part of the Hall of Fame. And he, here's why I think that is. It's because when I look at Dale Murphy, I want to know somehow, some way that guys like him, average, ordinary guys, without any type of performance-enhancing drugs, can make it to the top of their game. That's what I think we want. I think that's what real is. We want guys like Dale Murphy to be our heroes, not just because he's an underdog, but because he represents every man. He represents us. Why do we want this? Because in a world where even the rocket himself, Roger Clemens, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, is being indicted for lying before Congress regarding his involvement with performance-enhancing drugs, that maybe, just maybe, maybe, there's an honest guy, a good guy, a real guy, who can have what it takes to make it to the top. All of us want to believe that real does exist. Isn't that right? We want to know that real exists. We're looking for something more than just cool or trendy or catchy. Real is what we want. Real transcends generations. Real crosses gender and social divides. We all want real. I want real. But when the authors of Scripture spoke about real, they used another word. And it's a word that was difficult to describe because it had multiple meanings. Its definition was complex in fact, it meant so many things, completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, so safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfection, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. This word meant all of these things. And to a first century Hebrew, there was nothing more real, more tangible, more substantial than this word. Nothing could be added to or taken away from this word. It could not be concocted or conjured or manufactured or manipulated. It was everything that God was and everything that they were not. And this word is shalom. Now when this word is translated into English, it simply means peace. And what is peace? There's so many different definitions of that. But typically... At the end of the day, most of us would say that it's the opposite of conflict. And some might say, you know, whether that's represented like in the, the Middle East. Boy, wouldn't we love to have peace there. Maybe it's internal peace. But it's simply the opposite of conflict. 
But so much of the meaning of the word is found throughout the life and teachings of Jesus is lost when shalom is interpreted and relegated simply to the opposite of conflict. And here's the truth. Our lives, my life, needs something so much more real than the lack of conflict. We need shalom. This is what we need. In one of my favorite books in in recent memory, it's by a guy named Donald Miller, and he wrote a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. It's a great book. Go out and buy this book. If you've got a little bit of your summer left, go read it. It's fantastic. And he talks a lot about story and how his story unfolded and is continuing to unfold. And I love that kind of language. And this is what he says. A good storyteller speaks something into nothing. Where there is an absence of story or perhaps a bad story, a good storyteller walks in and changes reality. He doesn't critique the existing story like a critic. He just tells something different and invites other people into the new story he's telling. There's something about that sense of story that resonates with me, something about that sense of story that is the very essence of shalom. And in the book of Luke, chapter eight, we meet a woman who in the midst of her desperate search for shalom meets Jesus, who walks in and changes her reality. Let me tell you her, let me tell you her story this morning and let me teach you today about finding shalom. And so we find her story in the book of of Luke chapter eight. Now chapter eight of Luke is a great book. It's a great chapter because it's really where you see the story of Jesus starting to unfold with this particular author's uh, perspective. There's a lot of power, a lot of mystery, but a lot of exciting things are happening. And just before we meet Jesus and a particular woman, uh, we find Jesus, Jesus had just healed a demon-possessed man, and people were, wow, blown away. What do we do with this guy? In fact, they, were, they didn't know what to do with him, so they sent him out on a boat. Go away, we don't know what to do with you. And then they're like, all right, come on back. We want more of this. And it says at the beginning of this passage that, that people were waiting by the seashore. They were waiting for him. So even though they were confused by him, and, and they put him away for a bit, they wanted more of him. I think that's the story of Jesus in society today, that, that there's a mystery to him, isn't there? There's something that's intriguing about who Jesus is that we can't quite figure out. And every, while we can figure out a lot of things in society, he is one thing that we can't quite put our finger on. But there's something that makes us want to look deeper and, and to want to find out more about him. And so he heals this demon-possessed man. He comes back on this ship. And this guy comes up to him who was a ruler in the synagogue and said, listen, my daughter is sick. She's 12 years old. In fact, she's about dead and she's, she might be dead right now. And I need you to come heal her. And so if you can imagine Jesus, who is just being swarmed by a crowd, this religious ruler, the crowd's part, the religious person comes up and says, hey, do something about my daughter. And so Jesus says, all right, let's go. And so while he is on his way, to heal someone else, he encounters a woman. A woman who is not too much unlike us today. A woman whose story we're going to hear about in verse 42. It says this. And Jesus was on his way. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So get a picture in your mind of what's happening in this story 
droves of people are surrounding Jesus. They want to see the miracles and the mystery and all the things that he's doing right now. There was no TV. There was no TMZ to watch what Lindsay Lohan is doing today. So let's go, let's go create a moment right now. And that will give us something to talk about tonight when we're going to bed or when we're with our families. And so there are so many people, thousands, were cr- even about to crush Jesus. So you can picture the disciples just pushing people back, saying, stay away, beating people with fishing rods maybe, or casting nets over them. There are people all around. This was the Jesus that we encounter. He was on his way. And in verse 43, it says this. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. There is so much in that one verse. So much in that one verse. In fact, as we read it, we see somebody who is ill. Okay, we know that, let's play the movie forward. We know that Jesus is going to do something and probably heal this lady. But is that the end of the story? Is that what the story is all about? See, to a first century Hebrew, they understood what, what the problem with this ailment was. In fact, it wasn't just a sickness. It wasn't just a matter of life or death. But this particular ailment separated this woman from community. It meant that she couldn't participate in any religious activity. She couldn't worship God. She couldn't come to a place like this as a first century Hebrew because she was unclean and the scriptures were very clear about what she was required to do. And for 12 years, she'd been separate from community. She'd been apart from her family, perhaps, from her friends, from the people that she loved for 12 years. What were you doing 12 years ago? Imagine being separate from the ones that you love, from the people that you're sitting next to for 12 years. Because for something that you can't even control, it's just there and you don't know what to do about it. I know what it feels like. I've had those moments where I felt lost and distant from people. But for 12 years, imagine that. And so it goes on to say that um, it says here that, uh, but no one could heal her. One translation says that, uh, and there's even a footnote if you read the NIV text, it says that she had exhausted all possible efforts. Maybe spent all of her money, all practical medicine aside, she'd done everything that she could, but nothing could heal this woman. She was desperate. She was desperate for something that was going to change her. She was desperate for something real. And she knew that Jesus was going to be coming by. Because she saw the crowds move and she heard the hubbub and she knew that something was going to happen. And she'd heard the stories about what he'd done for others. And maybe, just maybe, he can take me out of this, this, this moment of obscurity and put me into, right into the heart of community. Could he restore me? Could he just even heal me? Does he want to heal me? She knew that she, was, she wasn't allowed. She knew where she was allowed and she knew where she wasn't. But there was this kind of nagging what if. I feel like if there is a question or a statement that just really gets at the heart of God, that he just applauds and says, yeah, come on, come on. It's that what if. What if? And this woman was asking that sense of what if. What if I can just get caught up in the fray? What if no one notices? Even though I'm supposed to be a a part and all by myself, what if I can just, just somehow get close here, close enough maybe for him to notice me? You see, where there's shalom, there's a dream for something bigger than our minds can fathom. 
was her dream. That's what she wanted. She knew that she'd heard of Shalom and she knew the story of it, but what was it going to mean to her personally? Verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. So again, you're picturing the crowds crushing and people all around and Jesus moving with purpose and focus. I've got somewhere to be. I've got to heal this girl because she's either dead. I mean, certainly this, this miracle is going to be far more significant than any little thing that might happen in the midst of the crowd. I've got somewhere to be. It doesn't make any sense to do what Jesus is about to do. She gets close, close enough. And here's the thing. In, in Hellenistic culture... This is where her approach was all wrong. Not only was she at the wrong place, maybe at the right time as the story unfolds, but she wasn't allowed there. But the Hellenistic culture believed that there was power, that the gods held power in their cloaks, in their garments. And so even though she, had, she knew the stories, probably from childhood, of, of what the Hebrew scriptures had taught, she said, you know what, maybe I'll just I'll give it a shot. What if I can just get close enough and touch his, his garment? Maybe that will be enough. Maybe that will be enough. Her approach was all wrong. It was entirely wrong. But see, this is the thing. Where there's shalom, conventional wisdom does not apply. What makes sense to us doesn't necessarily make sense to God. It's our heart. How are we approaching God? Even though some of us today are following the right sequences of behavior, maybe there's something more to this Jesus than just doing the right things. And she was doing all the wrong things, but somehow, as soon as she touched that garment, she was healed. Now, I don't know how they knew, but she knew somehow. She knew that something was changed immediately in that moment, and her life was changed immediately in that moment. And Jesus has a moment here where he says this, who touched me? Who touched me. In fact, one translation said, who is the one who touched me? Now, does that sound ridiculous to you? We've got people all around us that are pressing in on this Jesus that are about to crush him, and Jesus is worried about the one who's touched him. Certainly, there were people all around who were touching, just trying to get close, maybe trying to get a piece of his garment, you know, maybe get it signed and put it in a glass case back home. You know, they, they were chasing after this Jesus or maybe the idea of Jesus, who was the one who touched me. But there was something in that moment that Jesus knew. And I think before the beginning of time, and he knew that we'd be sharing and talking about this story today. Because where there's shalom, there is a knowledge of our deepest wounds. Jesus knew somehow through the spirit this woman's story. And I can imagine as he got up that day, somehow in all of his deity, he was thinking, you know what, I'm going to meet a woman today who has no idea what's about to happen to her. And she's going to chase after me, and I'm not just going to meet her halfway. I'm going to go way beyond what she could ever ask or imagine. Jesus knows your deepest wounds today. Your approach is probably all wrong. It may be all right, and that may make it all wrong in itself. But how does it make you feel to know that there's a God who doesn't just know about you. He knows everything about you. He knows you. Even the stuff that no one else can see. And so the scripture goes on. Just like the disciples, when they all denied it, 
Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. He's using, you know, just logic. What makes sense here? Of course. I mean, come on. Everyone was denying. I didn't touch you. It wasn't me. Uh, I'm staying way back here. You can tell. Way, way, way over here. I don't want your autograph. I've already got your autograph. You signed my scroll last week. They, they were trying to argue. And here's the truth. Where there is shalom, there will always be those who try and explain it away. Who try and say that shalom doesn't exist. You know, maybe some of you in this room have had a moment, an encounter with God, that it changed your life. Maybe it was on an Easter service here. Maybe it was Christmas Eve. Maybe it was in a small group. Maybe it was on a retreat. Maybe we have a, a group of middle school students that just got back from Rockbridge. May, in a camp experience, maybe there was a moment right there where you knew God reached from eternity and beyond and grabbed you by the scruff of your neck and said, your life is now headed this way, and you could feel it. But there are people, when you try to explain it, they say, I don't buy it. It doesn't make sense, and they try to explain it away. That where there's shalom, it's reality. There will always be people who try, who try to explain it away. But Jesus knew better. He said, no, someone touched me, and I know that power has gone out from me. Somebody drew on my ability to heal. Somebody approached me in the right way, maybe not in your way, but in the way I want them to approach me. And something was different. It says, now the power has gone out of me. Of course, that's not to suggest that all of his power. It meant that something transcended from another universe to ours here. In our reality, something happened. And it says in verse 47, Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. So the crowd breaks. Thousands of people are watching. Imagine a circle forms and there is this woman. And she is maybe sobbing at the feet of Jesus, begging, hoping somehow, even though she knows she did something wrong, maybe I, even though I'm healed, gosh, I wish I could take it back in this moment because what's going to happen to me or what dishonor am I going to bring on my family or my children? Was it all worth it? And so everybody is leaning in to see how Jesus is going to respond. That's what the world's doing today, too, to see how we are going to respond when people are hurting, when they're in need. What's the church gonna do? How are we gonna respond when there's devastation around this world? You say you mean business, but, but really when rubber meets the road, what is it you're gonna do? And so I imagine the religious people of the day and maybe even the disciples were sitting back with their arms crossed, knowing what was gonna have to happen. This woman may have to lose her life. She broke all kinds of codes. All sorts of things were going wrong here. And so they listened and they leaned in for Jesus' response. And he says this. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now this woman took a huge, huge risk. And where there's shalom, there's vulnerability, there's authenticity, there's a relational risk. She was willing to take that risk. But how was Jesus going to respond? And in an instant... The crowd, I imagined, was just, whew, this is entirely not what we expected. And don't just blow past this, because this isn't just a passing, okay, I dismiss you, woman. is isn't just, okay, sinner, I, I'm, I'm just going to allow this to happen. It's not unclean, but what is it? It's daughter, 
Oh, when I think about my daughters and how I love them and what I wouldn't do for them, that's the same language that Jesus uses here. And the author of this text knew that daughter meant something significant. Where there is shalom, there's authenticity, there's vulnerability, there's relational risk, but there's also a new identity awaiting. She was before unclean. She was broken. She was sinful. No one could get close to her. They didn't know what to do with her. No one, everybody just knew, well, the rules say I got to stay. I got to keep you over there. And that somehow makes me okay with God. And so I'm going to keep you at a distance. But God said in a moment, in an instant, Jesus said, I heal you. What does that mean for this woman? It means that community can be restored. It means that hope and family can be restored. It also means that she can now worship the way she wants to worship. She can worship her God. So in an instant, Jesus gives her a new identity. And that's what he offers to us today. Maybe some of you for the first time, you're hungry and looking for something real. I need a new identity. I know my story. I've been 12 years. I'll give you 30 years of knowing what it feels like to be on the outskirts of my life, trying to figure things out, trying to find balance, chasing from eraser to eraser like the shuttle run. I know what it's like. I could use a little new identity. What would that mean to you in that moment? Well, he goes on, and this is really, to me, this is the whole point of this passage. This is it right here. Because not only does Jesus give her everything that she could, beyond what she could ask or imagine, she, he heals her and restores her, does all kinds of wonderful things, but this is how it ends. Go in peace. Or for, de- for today, maybe it's go in shalom. Well, what's the big deal? What's the point? Go in peace. It's just, a, it's just kind of a greeting. Okay, now we've had a nice time together, and you're healed, and you're my daughter. Now it's time for you to go in peace. No, this is so significant. Because what he did in this instant is he said, now I've given you something. Now go tell people about it. Allow the shalom that now resides in you, that restored you, allow that to go and change the lives of those around you. Go and be a beacon of light, a city on a hill for what I have done for you. Show people that new identity can, can happen, that, that everything that they may have thought it meant to connect with God, it's, it no longer means that anymore. It's just about me and you, my daughter. And it doesn't make any sense, and it transcends all logic and and knowledge of the day, but what it does is it says that where there is shalom, there is a renewed sense of purpose and strategy, and when God breathes new life into an individual, that's what he does. It's never for its own sake. He gives you shalom so that you can be shalom to someone else, and at the end of the day, the real nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of this passage is this. It's not just about shalom, it's not just about order, it's not just about faith and approach. It's about this. Where there is shalom, there is Jesus. Because where there is Jesus, there is everything that we are not. 
there is wholeness, there is fullness, there is purpose, there is vitality. There is everything that we can't even begin to conjure or concoct. No amount of performance-enhancing drugs can conjure him. He just is. He's enough. He's everything our souls crave and everything that we're not. And here's the only condition. You want to find shalom? This is it. You've got to be here. You've got to be here. A couple years ago, I was noticing my son would always approach me, and he would say, hey, Daddy, hey, Daddy. And uh, we would talk, and after, hey, Daddy, hey, Daddy. And I'm like, son, I'm right here. You don't have, just, just talk. And what I realized is that it took him two or three hey, Daddies to what? To get me here. Because I was always there, the next email, the next meeting, the next important conversation, the next miracle, just like Jesus. He could very easily have been there on to the next miracle, but what did he do? He was here. He was present in the midst of a broken woman's need. Parents wrestle with being here with their kids. Moses, when, Jesus, when, when God called him to the, to the mountain to... Give him a picture for what the nation of Israel was going to look like. He said, come here and be here with me. What was he saying? He said, it was, there's something about our tuning our minds and our presence and everything that we are to being here with God. Because when we're here, we can be honest. When we're here, we can find real. To be present with him, not somewhere else. This is what we're looking for, and this is what he asks from us. The article that was written in the Wall Street Journal ends this way. He says, if we're interested in Christianity in any sort of serious way, it's not because it's easy or trendy or popular. He's talking about a generation of young people, but he says it's because Jesus himself is appealing, and what he says rings true. It's because the world we inhabit is utterly phony, ephemeral, narcissistic, image-obsessed, and sex-drenched. And we want an alternative. Are you ready for an alternative? You tried things your way and somebody else's way over and over and over again. And you're crying out, I need real. I need an alternative. I thought I even found real. I can remember real. But somehow I've lost a sense of real it's not because we want more of the same that's what this author is saying he doesn't want more of what the world has to offer he wants something different and we can't handle more of the same can we because more of the same we know where that ends up we know where that's going to land a good storyteller speaks something into nothing Where there's an absence of story or perhaps a bad story, a good storyteller walks in and changes reality. He doesn't critique the existing story like a critic. He just tells something different and invites other people into the story he is telling. What is the story that Jesus is trying to tell you right now? Is it to be here Is it to be present with him? Is it just to take a moment, just a couple of moments, and to say, God... I have relegated this corner of my life to, uh, to never think about again. I'm just not going to deal with this. 
Is it a relationship? What does here mean for you? Is it worth the risk? Well, we're going to give you just a couple of moments to think about that. And as Paul comes out and plays this very simple song, what I want you to do is, if, if it's at all possible, I want you to try and be here. Don't think about what, what your kids are doing in promised land. They're going to be fine. There's lots of goldfish to go around. Don't think about where you're supposed to be or the roast that's in the oven or where can I find a place where kids eat free or any of that stuff. This is you. This is you being here with God. And maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever done this and you're not sure what to do and there's really no posture. We learned from this woman, there's no right way to do this other than just to be here. and Just say, God, I'm here. Because in his presence, there's healing. There's fullness. There's reconciliation. There's redemption. There is shalom. Do you need shalom today? Listen to these words just for a moment. Forget the person next to you. And allow these words to penetrate your heart today.
I don't know what here means for you, but I know that there is a God who desperately wants to be here with you, not just in this building, but everywhere you go. And for some of you this morning, something's stirring inside of you and you're not sure what to do, and we want you to know that we're going to have some individuals here on the front of the stage that would love to pray with you or talk with you, try and answer some questions. These are broken, imperfect people just like you. But they've experienced that shalom and they want to share that story, but they want to hear your story as well. So if something resonated with you today and you'd like somebody to talk with or pray with, you've got something particularly heavy on your heart, or maybe for some of you, you've yet to begin a relationship with Christ, we want to do that with you as well. So when I close, you're welcome to, uh, you're welcome to come and pray with them. Will you pray with me today? Father, I feel like the theme of my life lately is that you're reminding me a whole lot of who I'm not. God, at the end of the day, this story isn't really so much about who I'm not, but it's who you are. And I thank you for that. God, just keep doing it. And I pray that for my friends in, in this room today, that you would not just remind them of who they're not, but you would, just like you did, For this woman who you healed in the midst of a busy journey, on your way to something else, you gave her a new identity. You called her daughter. Father, we are your daughters and sons. And I pray, God, that uh, that you would continue to fill us. Would you live in us? Would you change us? Would you inspire us to go out and be shalom to a world who is so desperately looking for something real to hold on to? Jesus, you are shalom. You are our peace. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, thanks for being here this morning, and we pray that you have a great week.
I wanna get off and go home again. I can't take the speed it's moving in. I know I can, but honestly, won't someone stop this train? No, no, no. 